Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Steve Walsh. Steve is the Managing Director at Jump Media Group Limited, an integrated agency in Northamptonshire, which specialises in connecting brands, businesses and individuals with their target audiences. Steve, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Likewise, thank you ever so much for having me. Thank you ever so much as well for taking the time to come onto the air with us. Now, Steve, the purpose um, of these podcasts is to essentially gather together a variety of different perspectives on leadership as a whole. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you coming from a sporting background. I think leadership is all about fostering a, a positive culture of excellence. And, and as a leader, you are the, the pioneer and the example of that. I think that everyone is looking to you to set the tone. And um, the way that you do that will, will set the way that people work in your organization, the way that they engage, the, you know, the way that they manage relationships, kind of everything. It's such an all-encompassing thing, being a leader and, and leadership. But it's certainly not something that anyone can take lightly. I think if you look at sporting organizations, of which is my background, having been a, a, a Great Britain gymnast, you, you can see how actually um, the culture that the leader or leaders create um, goes a, a, a huge way into actually determining whether that is a successful experience for everyone or not. We, we've seen great sports teams, cultures change as leadership figures have moved on and you've seen therefore success um, alter accordingly. So I think that um, being being a leader is fostering a culture, setting expectations um, and doing everything you can to, to help individuals to um, do their part within a winning team and a winning mechanism. And have you found that you've had to adapt your own style of leadership moving from sport to business or are there many elements of that that you've actually been able to carry over you found? I think it's a bit of both. So when, when I set up Jump, um, I set it up with the idea that we would bring the best parts of, of sport into a business world. Those best parts in, include um, things like not settling for mediocrity. We wanted to uh, like really, really push on. I was speaking to um, a guy called Tristan Collins back last summer, who is the um, head of coach education for Sport New Zealand. And, and he put, put the nail on the head and he said, you know, there's, there's a lot of mediocrity in business. Sport operates a kind of better never stop mentality. And we wanted to bring that to, um, to the, the business world and, you know, in my field in, in marketing. However, you, you can't bring everything that is in sport into um, business because you're working with very, very different people. Sport is, is full of um, individuals that are very driven, can be a bit cutthroat. Um, it, it's a kind of winner-takes-all um, environment a lot of the time. Business isn't like that. You can't treat employees like they're high-performance sports people. You, you can't um, treat client relationships necessarily like that. But what you can do is, is bring the best elements with a, a slightly more maybe softer, more caring touch, galvanize um, people um, to come on board and actually take the principles of coaching, which are all about individuality. <clears throat> Excuse me. And all about treating people as an individual and actually getting the best out of someone's character if you can bring that into the business world, apply that to client relationships and to relationships with you know people you work with, you can actually start to develop a, a very high performance culture, but in a slightly different way to, to sport. 
Cultures are hugely important in both sports and business, isn't it? But also there you've um, highlighted the importance of people management because no one leadership approach necessarily works with every single personality. Leaders have to be able to, in both coaching in sport and in business, adapt their approach to obviously cater for different individuals, don't they? 100%. And, and that's where you see um, in, all, in all sports um, successful managers, leaders, get the best out of people that um, others couldn't necessarily do. If you have a dictatorial leadership style, it's my, my way or the highway. That can work for a certain amount of time, but you, you can only ever then engage one type of person. It can often lead to things like burnout and things like that. You just have to be, in a leader in any field, you have to be so adaptable to changing circumstances. You know, Obviously, we're seeing that at the moment with the pandemic, mm. um, but also with, with changing characters. And like a lot of people who, who will be listening to this, I've been watching the, the Last Dance, the, the Chicago Bulls, Michael and Jordan documentary on Netflix. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of different characters on that. In, in his team, there was he as, as one extreme example of, um, you know, just, just all out single mindedness to win. And then there's other players on the team like Dennis Rodman, who is absolute maverick, can't, can't produce his best unless he goes out and passes in, um, you know, a few casinos every now and again. Um, but still brought then what they needed to win as a team. So I think it's about um, allowing for different characters, about understanding and, and massively empathizing with everyone that you work with. And that's obviously like client side as well. If you can do that and understand kind of a level of empathy across everyone that you work with, you can start to forge that culture and start to actually develop like true leadership rather than just being successful around a certain type of character. And as a leader, you also have to be very selective over who you surround yourself with as well. Um, Nelson Mandela, for example, once said, surround yourself with people who are better than you are. And I think that that can translate to obviously picking out people in terms of recruitment who have qualities who are maybe a little bit more refined than yours in certain areas just to complement yourself as a leader. Because ultimately, it's about not just nurturing the best out of those around you, but also allowing them to get the best out of you as well at the helm. Yeah, and it's it's about looking at, I guess, leadership you know, sometimes we can look at it from from one um, one mindset of almost like a pyramid, and, and you're at the top of it, and you're leading everyone in that kind of structure. But equally, you can think of it as more as a sphere or, or a circle, where actually you're you're just at the centre, and okay, you, your job is to kind of radiate that leadership and, and forge the culture that we spoke about. But actually, that's not a one way street. And one of the um, really difficult things as a leader, if you lead from the kind of pyramid approach, is that actually no one's charging your battery necessarily. But actually, if, if you develop this kind of sphere or, or circle kind of look upon things, that actually everyone is responsible for taking leadership as an energy at different times and also using that energy to, to charge the whole system rather than one person, you know, charging and it trickling down. That's hugely important. And I think as a leader, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think organizations um, are cultivated or successful organizations are cultivated when they have brilliant people um surrounding each other and therefore charging everyone else up and you know just doing things better than one single person could equally um as a leader i guess you have to take then responsibility of making sure that you do surround yourself with those people but i mean psychologists and obviously we're likely to hear from andrew strauss in this series andrew works with a sports psychologist called pete Lindsay, who i used to interact with at british gymnastics and he used to talk about charging the battery and draining the battery like very often and, and essentially if you if you have battery battery drainers around anyone that's going to suck the life out of the culture and the system but actually if, if everyone whether they're you know, if we talk about traditional organization structures whether they're junior or a senior or you know a c-level um, executive 
if they're all battery charges that like hugely creates a, um, a positive drive to the organization no matter what level you are because we're all interacting with each other it's not it's not just this one-way system and um, so yeah i think that's hugely important and obviously we talked about that view of leadership that you have uh, quite a lot there Stephen also um, if you will maybe your style of leading as well um, so what would you say have been some of the key influences behind that sort of style that you've taken on um, throughout your sort of sporting and your business career I think sport was was without doubt the um, the biggest influence um, being surrounded by some amazing coaches that, that talked and, and walked the walk of that individual approach had um, a serious amount of empathy about them and um, also being surrounded by like seriously intelligent people that I would I very much respect like obviously I just mentioned Pete Lindsay Tristan Hollander and um, high performance New Zealand a lot of different people working in you know what we typically call the back office were hugely um, influential on me to create like positive cultures equally in sport you, you have the opportunity to see um, the opposite um, and maybe to help define what you necessarily don't don't want to look like as a leader and don't want to be part of the leadership team. Coming out into into business, we we've worked with some um, amazing clients, amazing organisations. We've done a lot of work recently um, with uh, a charity called Victim Support, which supports victims of crime. They are obviously coming at things from a different point of view and actually helping vulnerable people. And they're absolutely amazing people in that organisation that are very inspiring around actually how they're trying to lead you know entire populations into more positive roles and, and mindsets. So I think it's it's probably no different to life in that you, you pick up what you want to take forward to your advantage and almost like keep it in your in your back pocket um, to to help galvanise your own style. But you then equally see plenty along the way that that in, influences you in different ways to say, no, I definitely don't want to be like that or I definitely want to want to leave it. But ultimately like like anything, you don't just become a leader by reading about leadership or, mm. or seeing it. Um, you you become a leader by aiming to lead and and you learn a hell of a lot along the way. It's about experience, isn't it? The experience of not just trying things and learning from your own mistakes, but also in meeting new people, picking out certain aspects of uh, leadership styles that you can relate to, but also ones that you might think aren't necessarily quite your kind of style and then sort of moulding yourself based upon those experiences, I guess. And having the self-reflection to realise that you, your way isn't the only way and, and that you might not have it right. And, and trial and error gets kind of like a bad rep, but like everything we do in life is trial and error. You know, we, I was talking about Michael Jordan earlier. You know, he talked famously about missing missing as many baskets as, as he made. And because everything is trial and refine, as we used to say when I was in, in gymnastics. So actually we're... It, I've got an example. Sniffer dogs, actually, they don't necessarily just follow the scent and go straight up the mountain in one direction. What they actually do is kind of zigzag where they've, they've got the scent and they start to lose it. So they go in the opposite, opposite direction until they start to, to lose it again. They actually zigzag up the mountain to find, say, you know, someone that they're trying to rescue. And it's a little bit like that in all areas of life, certainly in, in business and certainly in leadership, as in like actually just like constant trial and refinement. Because what works now with with generations that we work with is, is not going to work in 15 years we're, we're in a live complex environment and then actually if, if i yourself anyone just stayed exactly as we are now we won't be a very effective leader in, in 15 years so it, it's about constant evolution exactly and if we do think about evolution uh, right now that we focus on the uh, the future uh, steve before we do wrap things up on the program today um do give me an idea of what you envision the future holds for yourself and for jump media group in the next 12 months in getting through the current covid situation but also as to what your ambitions are for beyond the uh, the pandemic as well so we don't have ambitions to be the biggest 
the biggest marketing agency ever. We have ambitions to be the best at what we do. Um, that again isn't is the evolutive kind of um, journey. The, the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. Um, so yeah, I mean it's all obviously rooted around some some serious uncertainty at the moment. We've we've been planning to um, put some decent expansion in in place for a while. As a result, we've been you know saving the pennies and building up some financial infrastructure to, to do that. At the moment, it, that's obviously on hold. We're um, we're fortunate that this has come at a time where you know we've we've um, got money in the bank that we were looking to use elsewhere. But now we we obviously our, our first um, item on the agenda is to make sure that everything is, is safe and sound regards COVID, however long that may last. Um, but essentially, beyond that, the goal the goal hasn't changed. The goal is just to be excellent at what we do, and then we um, our aim is that by doing that, we work with. Um, different exciting projects whether that's actually doing some things in the public sector because actually we really like influencing a lot of people there whether that's doing some cutting edge projects in, in the private sector and it, it's all about better never stops and about just making sure that we continue to be involved and, and be the best we can and therefore work in an environment and a culture which actually we absolutely love doing every day certainly sounds as if uh, there's some uh, real ambition there for I'd say quality as opposed to uh, quantity um, the way that you put it there Steve and what I think would be absolutely fantastic um, as well for the listeners even though we are just about out of time today is in the future once we start to see those hopes being borne out we can maybe have you back on the air with us just to catch up on how the uh, the business is uh, doing as well um, for now though I have to say it's been a thoroughly insightful experience having you on the air with us and also a real pleasure I've thoroughly enjoyed this discussion Thank you so much for having me on. Love to share the story at um, a different point if I can. Absolutely, Steve. And in the meantime, please do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on as well. Likewise, and yourself. That was Steve Walsh, the Managing Director at Jump Media Group Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Sir Andrew is currently the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. And as a former England player, Strauss is one of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. He also has the accolade of being the England captain with the second highest number of test victories under his belt in history. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname. Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career. Full stop. And um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity, and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets, and there was my chance, and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to? see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. um, To have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness, they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how 
how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well in a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing 
a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was what was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, 
And I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. because I Yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them. 
um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it if you if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your Mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say... But whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much. Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re- wearing red so it w- what, what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important 
step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.